Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 65. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm L. Baum. <laughs> I'm JT White. JT Brooks calling in all the way from glorious North Hollywood, California, <laughs> on the other side of the valley. Yeah, COVID had to tear us down again. There's been a breach in the extended clip uh, vault, and uh, there's an infection. And I'm going to be the first to go, but uh, I'm proud to have been podcasting with you boys. Just a few minutes ago, JT was banging on the walls of the Jean-Luc Godard, Chris Kyle <laughs> Studios, and I, it took all of my will not to let him in. But, you know, after studying the films of George Romero, I've learned some tactics and how to deal with this kind of thing. And we realized that JT had to go remote for this episode. Yeah, we had to sweep him onto the street, you know, so to speak, uh, you know, <laughs> shoo him away as he tried to get into the studio. But, uh yeah, I mean, we we take it serious. I know I've made kind of like snide remarks about COVID before, but I I won't be seeing JT for a couple months after this. Now. <laughs> uh, let's not get into the actual details because that's boring. So this week is a momentous episode because it is week one of our uh, new mini series that we had announced previously, the Brooks Brothers series. We haven't done one of these month-long series in a while since we covered The Sandman uh, back in, I think it was November, uh, maybe December. It was it was a little bit of both. It okay. was a little bit of both. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, we're taking a look at the Brooks Brothers, James L. Brooks and Albert Brooks. We know that they're not brothers, but we're very excited to talk about these two fellas. They're just like brothers. You know, they may not be brothers, but they're just like brothers. <laughs> and they're almost like, I kind of consider myself the third Brooke brother because I've seen most of these movies before <laughs> and I'm already a big fan of all of this stuff. And I'm, I'm really, um, in, you know, excited to relook at them and, you know, just to try to get more out of them. Yeah, I've seen, I think, half of the movies that are programmed so far. Uh, already and i've loved all of them so i'm very excited to keep going and hey week one wasn't uh wasn't a disappointment uh jt how what's your experience with the brooks boys oh jim and al i love them they're great uh and it's great to be back and they're welcoming arms again i feel like i've seen like well i've seen all but one james l brooks uh and like for al it's a little i've seen a little bit less um but i'm excited that we're doing this deep dive it feels like a real prestige ass turn of us classing up the joint with this middle brow shit yeah for our usual mission statement being you know kind of a high brow and low brow or more and less respectable kind of thing uh, this is kind of a, a breach of conduct, uh, a breach of the code <laughs> of conduct, rather. Uh, it's kind of a betrayal of our fans. It's kind of a betrayal of our own uh, outlook on life and cinema. But we're just trying to have fun. Yeah, I'm, we're just trying to get retweeted by people who work for movie blogs because they're more likely to seen, have seen these movies than... I don't know, whatever we uh, cover. But yeah. I, I think James L. Brooks is a worthy cause because I think he's still pretty maligned mm -hmm. in the eyes of most movie fans. And I feel like his movies, 
kind of have like this strange, you know, they're they're almost aggressively middle brow ness to them to where like I feel like a lot of people reject them. Like a lot of people like to trash on how do you know this movie for being like over sentimental, but I think I think there's more to these movies than people are are willing to give credit for. And I think there's more to this connection than just their names and the fact that Albert Brooks appears in half of James L. Brooks's films as an actor. Uh, and, of course, uh, James L. also makes an appearance in Modern Romance in a great scene that we'll talk about in a few weeks. Uh, but both of these are uh, both of these men are Jewish filmmakers who at one point have uh, abandoned their heritage's last name that was bestowed upon them. James L. Brooks, not him personally, his father uh, changed his name from uh, Edward Bernstein to Edward Brooks and gave that last name to his son. And of course, Albert Brooks's given name is Albert Einstein. Uh, yeah. brother uh, you know the real Brooks brothers are Albert Einstein and uh, Bob Einstein or Super Dave Osborne rest in peace yeah and um, you know I guess I guess Brooks kind of gets the I, I'm, I, they're both named Brooks Albert Brooks <laughs> gets the pass right because you know then he'd be Albert Einstein right so he you know maybe he's not evading his heritage but it's a little convenient right yeah I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I feel like there, there's a point in time where everyone introduced uh Bob Einstein as super Dave Osborne for like True. I feel like that was such a thing for like 20 years really before he kind of had another huge role on Curb Your Enthusiasm that was like people just called him that and it's kind of funny that you know, uh, they're always kind of, I don't want to say running away from, but kind of skirting the kind of traditional, I guess, assimilation uh, narratives of like a lot of like Jewish comedy. You know, Brooks, his most successful project is The Simpsons, which is, you know, uh, an outwardly uh, uh, Gentile show. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, you know, it's, you know, the Gentiles, they don't know as much as about as themselves as we do. You know what <laughs> I mean? Course, yes. <laughs> That's why we had to create the Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> only good WAPS TV show is, uh, it's always no, sunny the and only good WAP TV show is The Sopranos. <laughs> no, WAPS. A lot of great WAP content. I did, I did, I did say that with a lisp. I got, I got what Biden has, but, um. <laughs> Seriously, are we allowed to say WAP? What's the ruling on that? WAP? Yeah, of course. Of course. course. That's, okay. of course. We're encouraged to say it. Like, socially, we're encouraged to be racist towards Italians. We don't need to get into it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm very passionate about that subject. <laughs> I don't think we're going to be talking about any Italian culture or people for the next month. Let's put that on hold. <laughs> we might as well get into our first film. It's the first feature film by James L. Brooks. It's Terms of Endearment from 1983. And uh, when you got, you know, someone like James L. Brooks writing, directing, and producing, and you got a cast like uh, Deborah Winger, Shirley MacLaine, Jack Nicholson, Jeff Daniels, Danny DeVito, and John Lithgow, you, you can't lose, can you? No, we got we got some powerhouse actors here, and it's, it's a perfect, you know, first attempt for Brooks, I feel like. And I think this was, uh, ironically, his most praised, too. I think this one got a lot of awards, including Jack Nicholson getting that great gold statue we know and love well they <laughs> they i say uh the ensemble but really uh jimmy here won best picture best director and best adapted screenplay which is ridiculous for a debut film and honestly for the i i think that i have a hard time being like objective about the third act and how mm -hmm. it 
you know, kind of just tears everything into the the weepy category. Uh, But the first hour and a half is, you know, about as good as an Oscar movie has ever been, really, other than like whatever, How Green Was My Valley. No, yeah, I've I've always said that like James L. Brooks kind of makes the good versions of all these kind of like Oscar bait movies Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, or like, uh, I don't know, what people would associate with like a screenwriter heavy movie. He's like... He's uh, excelling to the like fullest point at where you could go with that stuff, and uh, you know maybe it's his involvement with like TV and just like his all encompassing nature, being a producer, all that stuff that he just uh, has the knowledge to perfect this. Yeah, I feel like his uh, relationship to TV is very important in this debut feature of his because I think a lot of what he's doing really well and successfully like mirrors the type of like, I don't know, sentimentality and like um, very writery structure that a lot of his shows like have. And I mean, to get into like the the plot happening of uh terms in, of endearment it has that like a uh, beautiful little cold open that uh watching it this time around after the Farrelly's series uh really reminded me of that how they sort of have like the little like background backstory before things take off and i think the uh the regional specificity here is also felt in a way that's similar to the Farrelly's, even though this isn't a region that brooks would return to as far as i'm concerned or as far as I know, rather. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'll never go back to Texas. <laughs> if I have anything to say about it. Uh, yeah, so the the TV background we alluded to, you know, if you don't know James L. Brooks and then you just go on Letterboxd and you're like, this guy, he's just made six movies and that's it. No, what he's, a bum. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, from the 60s to the early 80s, uh, he created eight TV shows that ran like uh, or four of which ran a hundred plus episodes. Uh, he created the Mary Tyler Moore show, which had four spinoffs or uh, yeah. Rhoda Phyllis Lou Grant. <laughs> and there's also like an animated uh, spinoff of Phyllis, I think as well. Uh, so the man was earning checks, you know, uh, and also his longtime collaborator in film and uh, prior collaborator and partner of Peter Bogdanovich, Polly Platt, who, you know, film podcasters, you know, where there, there, there's been talk of, of Polly Platt's greatness otherwise. But I just wanted to shout her out for giving James L. Brooks also the uh, the Matt Groening comic strips that inspired him to reach out to him and uh, start their collaboration on what would become The Simpsons. Wow, I didn't... So, Polly Platt handed the cartoon to him? That's what I read on wikipedia.org. <laughs> <laughs> That's impressive. That's impressive. She had she had her fingers in a lot of pies, yeah. so to speak. <laughs> in the pie? Isn't that what it's called? Fingers in the pie? That's. I think that's a, a saying. But before even sitcoms, he was working. J- James L. Brooks, that is, was working like uh, on like the CBS News as a writer, which obviously informs what we'll talk about next week. And worked on TV documentaries and stuff like that. And I think you know that background in television obviously lends itself so well to how much his films focus on media, even when his characters uh, aren't in the media still feels like it informs all of his films, you know? Hey, I'm real sorry about your dad. Take care of your mom. 
what is Terms of Endearment? Terms of Endearment is a uh, it's a multi generational drama about a uh, Texas widow with too many male suitors to count, and uh, her daughter uh, who has to you know uh, survive with a horny professor husband and kids and uh, very little money and eventually a uh, very serious illness. Uh, Jack Nicholson, a former astronaut who is addicted to having sex with young women, uh, begins a love affair uh, with the widow or Shirley MacLaine when he moves into the neighborhood. Uh, Shirley MacLaine's character, the grandma Aurora, and uh, he does a little growing up along the way as well. <laughs> I, I, um, you know, we're we're talking TV here a lot, and I feel like what's great about this movie is kind of like how uh, the plot is structured, especially before the the third act, before things kind of fall apart, but how you kind of just go back and forth between the mom and the daughter storyline and how it's like, it kind of is TV like, like, you know, a plot, B plot, but they're, you know, treated with the same amount of respect and whatnot. And I think, I don't know. It's just a, a really effective but simple filmmaking technique that Brooks takes advantage of. Mm-hmm. You'd seen this one before, right, JT? Oh, yeah. Um, I watched this uh, earlier this summer, actually. But I like in how the, the two stories hop back and forth. Um, something that struck me a lot this time uh, was the, like, I don't know, sort of the class element to it. I think that, like, as we talked about with, like, how do you know, uh, it's, like, really, like, upper middle class. But here, there's sort of, like, a class decline uh, that Deborah Winger has. Um, when she, uh, <laughs> my scooter is like really fucking, uh, fourth mic of the podcast. Yeah. Eager to hop on and talk about the melodrama and the class implications. <laughs> Down boy. <laughs> oh, sorry. Put the I phone up to just... the dog. Down boy. Yeah, <laughs> let me talk to scooter. Put, <laughs> put, put the phone up to scooter. I had this, I had this scooter out of the room. Uh, but yeah, I like that the, like you sort of see generational decline in class and status, like when Deborah Winger goes off with Jeff Daniels, uh, she ultimately winds up like with that really tragic scene where she's like at the grocery store and has to like, uh, put back like items of food. And I think that like counters really well with like the real snobbishness of when Shirley MacLaine is like having the Renoir painting like put into her hospital room. You don't have enough money? I don't have any checks. I guess I'll have to put some things back. Can I have the register key? She doesn't have enough money. (laughs) Yeah, I love that scene. It's so depressing at the grocery store. Uh, where Deborah Winger, as Emma, you know, can't afford her groceries and doesn't want to disappoint her kids. So she's being selective and, you know, uh, strategic about what items she's putting back. And, you know, obviously the uh, the clerk is no help because, you know, if you're a grocery clerk and some lady doesn't have enough money, that's not going to be a fun situation to deal with. But uh, John Lithgow, you know, swoops in like, a, like the sleazy, uh, horny old man or middle-aged man that he is trying to, you know, know uh pay his way into her life 
That's her declining her for a loan at the bank uh, on top of that. Just oh, devastating. Which is so funny because like he comes off as very kind in the movie. I would say. I mean, I despite I, his actions, it's just raising Kane for me. Like <laughs> <laughs> the way he pulls up on her, uh, like when they're at the park or wherever they meet up yeah. that one day, and you have the shot from like the passenger seat of Deborah Winger's car, and she's looking down at the Lithgow, just pulls up and peers into the fucking window, smiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's like he has like this weird uh mixed energy of like kindness and horniness that is yeah. kind of maybe a little bit uh, <laughs> discomforting <laughs> uh so we see like all of this time pass within the first uh you know 30 minutes or so uh we see deborah winger and jeff daniels you know have their children and the uh, resistance uh, by her mother, Shirley MacLaine, to so many of the advances that they make in their life. And you also see Shirley MacLaine cycle through guys such as Danny DeVito looking like an absolute pimp in a bowler <laughs> tie. Brennan, you haven't said a word. Is that right? I feel like I haven't stopped talking since I came in. I guess because I've been thinking about you so much. No, I was going to say, like, both of these characters... Um, Shirley MacLaine and Deborah Winger, like, I feel like one common thing that they have, you know, going back to, like, grocery store scene and uh, the Renoirs, they're both, like, kind of struggling for dignity in, like, in places where they can't find it or, like, that won't accept it in the ways they want it, you yeah. know? And, like, I feel like it's a constant struggle. They both feel like people who uh, are, like, haven't quite accepted the injustices of the world yet and are kind of surprised when, you know, maybe normal people would just kind of accept kind of the you know the struggle and whatnot but uh i mean you know even with the renoir like how uh shirley mcclain uses the renoir to get jack nicholson to come over because she can't admit that she wants to sleep with him she's like you can come over and see the renoir and then you know nicholson and his you know sleazy demeanor he's like it's in your bedroom right <laughs> no i love that because yeah. I, I didn't even realize that until now because i was thinking about uh the scene that i'm about to mention it like m mirrors about 20 30 minutes earlier uh the first time jack nicholson asks her out and the process that he goes through of making i'm guessing making up a dinner that he was invited at the white house uh where he could bring a date and he even like qualifies that saying i'd usually take a younger woman but i didn't want the other wives to bitch me out uh, so I'll ask an old lady like you uh and then he like downgrades that to asking her to lunch and then when she agrees to that he just immediately downgrades it to asking her to fuck right then and there <laughs> what the hell? you, you want to have dinner out sometime no thank you what about lunch you ladies you, you like to have lunch a lot don't you you know there's something about your manner it's like you, you you're trying to toy with me that's right aurora i'm playing with no, you no this is the element this is exactly you want to play aurora his character is incredible when they finally go on that lunch date and then they're driving on the beach after and Jack Nicholson is driving with his feet uh, like on the beach. That is one of my favorite scenes in any James L. Brooks movie that I've seen. It's just uh, pure pleasure. I mean, the, the film's so beautiful too. it kind of it looks unlike any of his other films. And some of it is like the, the visual approach isn't as like 
uh, I guess, confident as some of the later films and the staging isn't as perfect, I guess. But it has this kind of gauzy like sheen left over from the 70s almost in this early 80s movie that none of his other movies really look like to me. No, and that car scene is great because it, it is kind of a representation of a lot, a lot of what like what a Brooks scene is. Not even really a movie, but what a Brooks scene is. It's a lot of like, a lot of like happiness and joy, and a lot of like funny humanistic moments. You know, often thwarted by like some awkward happening or some like deep melancholy. There's always that contradiction in these scenes throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, one, uh, you know, for my for my big brained comparison of the week, uh, a filmmaker that I don't think I've ever even mentioned on this show, but one of the greats. It did remind me in now. I'll, I'll set it up first, so you don't gasp at me dropping the name. Uh, nobody's gonna gasp (laughs) i might in the way that it elides so many plot points such as you know the children being conceived and uh the affair between lithgow and winger starting and all all of these narrative ellipses uh alongside the like uh generational uh differences being drawn out in this family drama reminded me of the films of ozu and i was like hey this is uh this is a highbrow comparison that i could put james l brooks with (laughs) and then i'm just looking at uh you know jeff daniels uh taking a road trip across america and it's like hey this is just like dumb and dumber (laughs) (laughs) jt can you believe what eddie just did right now (laughs) comparing ozu to James L. Brooks. JT, <laughs> I, what are your thoughts on I that? I mean, I buy that. I like, I definitely um, can see, like, I don't know. I think the comparison is apt, especially with how, like, uh, quaint the story is. And then also just, like, how I wound up just, like, weeping by the end. It's like, <laughs> what, like, we're an Ozu film. I feel like I'm not really, like, feeling like a whole lot until like a sudden release at the end with Brooks. It's like, there are a lot of really touching, like sentimental moments that happen throughout. And then still it just makes the conclusion, uh, a lot more devastating, but I think they're like very comparable. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I buy the comparison too. I was just, you know, I was just trying to hype up some controversy. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned Jeff Daniels, Eddie. I mean, I feel like, Jeff Daniels almost feels like a silent uh, Ozu patriarch, not letting any emotion ever hit his face. You yeah. know, it is. He does give a really good performance here as someone who's like, um, like just very like smarmy in like a very inoffensive way, just like a very unspecial person who is very like smarmy yeah. and has like a smugness to he's, him. That's... He's doing the big faces, but they're not expressing actual emotions, yeah. you know? And it's such a weird performance in that regard. It's really sad, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that keys into like a big part of the uh, gleeful or even com- light comedic on the outside, but very melancholy, uh, deeper within feeling of this whole film. When you mention him, like, not feeling that much emotion, that makes me think there was one, like, I don't know. It's a shot that really struck me um, is when Deborah Winger, like, ultimately, like, passes away. And uh, we don't really see that, like, uh, any, like, focus or close up on her. But you get that, like, great bit of acting where, uh, like... Jeff Daniels really is just kind of avoiding looking at her, but Shirley MacLaine is like really like intensely feeling that and talking about how like she thought she would feel some sort of relief at the moment because the suffering is finally over. And I think that's like the way Brooks uses the contrast between Jeff Daniels there and Shirley MacLaine is great. 
And I think that even though uh, it goes into obviously like full blown, not like cloying, but very heavy melodrama for the entirety of the last 30 minutes, because this film as, you know, Ozu like as I thought it was for the first hour, 20 minutes or so, that's because the the lumps are not discovered or even mentioned until 95 minutes into this movie. And I don't want to say the first 95 minutes are, you know, plotless or anything like that, but they're just these kind of smaller scenes uh, that end up going on for a while and having these bigger implications. And then you have these big jumps in time. And then you have this concentrated 30 minutes of uh, the saddest thing you'll ever see in a James L. Brooks movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's such a weird, like, tonal jerk, kind of. Uh, but I think he pulls it off very, very well. I think, yeah, I think it is a masterful uh, jerk to being, you know, tearjerker-ish. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's in part because, like, as, you know, kind of plotless as it's been, it's kind of just been wholly dedicated to the lives of these characters, especially Deborah Winger, and just, you know, seeing her, you, you see her grow up, you get attached to her and you see her, you know, her triumphs and her, her failures. And just to kind of end that with her dying is, you know, it's, it's going to be it's going to be touching. I think yeah. Brooks knows this. And also to juxtapose the scene of Deborah Winger in the grocery store, helpless to like a 20 year old grocery clerk who's telling her she doesn't have enough money to, you know, Shirley MacLaine just fucking screaming at the hospital staff the entire last 30 minutes treating them like fucking shit you know Mm -hmm. uh because that's i guess what you do when you're old and have money and haven't worked a job in 40 years or whatever Mm -hmm. or your whole life maybe i don't know (laughs) and your daughter's dying yeah that's true (laughs) well yeah exactly Uh, I think this movie is really funny, too. Yeah, it's very... I mean, the first, you know, hour yeah, and a yeah. half more than the last 35 <laughs> minutes. But yeah, it's very funny. I There were a lot of big... I think Jack Nicholson obviously plays a big part in that. But a lot of the, the Daniels Winger stuff is funny, too, especially with how domineering Shirley MacLaine is. Like, she's... Yeah, I mean... Uh, at the beginning of the movie, kind of like you seeing the relation between, relationship between, you know, Deborah Winger and Jeff Daniels develop and how close McLean is uh, to her daughter. And like, I think just that uh, phone call she makes while they're laying in bed in the morning and Jeff Daniels has to like tell her off, so to speak. It's just mm-hmm. so so funny because you could just tell he's not even into it. Like the Jeff Daniels character is really sad because he, he never seems to ever emotionally invest himself, you know, to, to his family. Yeah. And um. At, at the beginning, it is kind of funny because he's such a, a, a freewheeling guy and you could kind of see how it's going to progress. I think he calls her, uh, you're my sweet ass gal. Yeah. And, she's, and she's, you know, uh, thrilled by it. But it, it is sweet at the moment, you know, kind of just like the the sweetness of like the beginning of relationships. But like, it, uh, you know, like everything in this movie, there's a sour side to it. <laughs> I think the sweetest thing, though, yeah. is at the end when Jack Nicholson uh, comes back uh, while Deborah Winger is dying, you know, mm-hmm. to uh, comfort the family and, you know, kind of be a part of the family, I guess. Uh, I, got, I got to say, that's when it went from uh, the laughs to the grabbing, grabbing the hankies, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also loved toward the end, you know, you have a great scene between uh, Nicholson and McLean when he's leaving to go back and uh, at like the airport, you know, and they, they hug and kiss and 
uh, say goodbye and all that. And it's a, it's a really beautiful romantic scene. And then the next scene is her describing it to Deborah Winger, whose immediate response is, I don't give a shit. I'm sick, you know? And it's like uh, very kind of self-effacing in the way that you are thinking about, or at least I was very invested in this, you know, romantic drama between 60 year olds uh and yet this you know a woman not even in middle age yet is dying uh and it's like such a it's it's just very sad (laughs) any any final thoughts on this one jt before we go ahead and wrap up um i mean there are just two moments in the nicholson performance and i mean just in general i guess um i think brooks is really good at capturing like a lot of little moments that either linger and that, that he you get by lingering in a shot or like a scene that I think like wind up uh, being really funny. Like the first one that jumped to mind in particular in like relation to ship to the Jack Nicholson performance is when he's like doing that shtick to Shirley MacLaine where he's like, you just lay back and enjoy the ride and doing like, <laughs> uh, uh, like talking clearly, like, like talking about fucking. And then she like leaves and is frustrated. And then he has that little beat where he says to himself, God, I'm such a shit. And so, and like, sm- like it, he's so aware of it and like reveling in it. It's fantastic. But then like, additionally, um, there's a moment, I think in, when we're introduced to him, the way he's like fucking rolling his eyes as he's like flirting with the two young women in the car just is so fucking good. <laughs> Nicholson has a lot of great moments and there's a lot of specificity to his character that makes it funny. I mean, th- one of the small details I, I appreciated on the second watch is him talking about the transition from his sauna to the pool. And he, he always yells every time he enters his pool. He's like, if, if you knew what it's like in the sauna, compare that going to the cold pool, you'll yell too. I mean, it's just like, you can't really argue against that. You know, that that's one of those things that's Brooks speaking from experience at this point, you know, it's his first film out of the gate, but he's already a rich guy from TV. He has these problems. You know, you, uh, if you read about his process, you know, that James L. Brooks takes about four years to research for a screenplay, which is so funny because his movies are these, you know, character dramas uh, that aren't, you know, about specific jobs necessarily or anything like that. But you you see it in those small moments like the sandwich in Spanglish and Jack Nicholson's uh, process of sauna versus pool or tub or whatever. Uh, you know, all of the, the small moments in life that he's very attuned to that make up these grand, even the grand mel- uh, melodramas, you know, are still made up of those small moments. And, uh, yeah, this one's amazing. It, it's not like a perfect masterpiece. There's still a little bit of uh, TV first director things going on, but it's about as good as it gets. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know what? I'm I'm going pacifist on this one. I'm giving this one... Okay. I'll, uh, instead of four and a half bullets, I will give this one uh, three handkerchiefs and a laugh and a half for four and a half. <laughs> <laughs> what math? I like, I like this new... This opens up a new whole way of rating things now. I'm going to have to... Oh, I'm just, I'm just going to go traditional four and a half bullets. I like what you did. I mean, I think this, you know, right out of the gate, Brooks understands his style so well. And like, um, I mean, it's a lot of it does come in like dialogue too. I mean, he is a great writer of dialogue and like 
for you know you him saying uh, he takes four years to write his character, write his movies. It seems a little long, but uh, <laughs> well, he's always also working on TV shows, True. so that makes sense. Yeah, you know, picks it up, get back, gets back to it. It's it's natural. Um, he but, writes every episode of The Simpsons in full. <laughs> There's no writer's. He's room. still doing it. <laughs> he wrote the Lena Dunham episode. He draws all of it too. <laughs> what a guy! But uh, no, the dialogue in this is like pitch perfect, and like each character, like characters have like perfect levels of wit to them and like a lot of the characters are funny like deborah winger shirley mcclain jack nicholson all funny and witty in their own way but never too uh overbearing it all feels natural to what's within the brooks universe and uh yeah this is a you know genuine tearjerker genuine hollywood excellence what about you, JT? I think I'm also going to give this one uh, four and a half bullets or some collection of handkerchiefs and laughs. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, earlier we were talking about how there's like a generational quality to it, like with you, the two, the split in the two stories. And I think that one uh, other aspect that like gets into the the children's generation that uh, Deborah Winger is raising. I feel I love how present they are, even though they don't really have a story. Like a lot of the perspectives we see, like there are times where it's like Jeff Daniels and Deborah Winger arguing, and we just see the kids out on the stoop, like overhearing it. And uh, there are moments where it's like. Um, uh, Jeff Daniels is on the phone with Shirley MacLaine uh, when uh, Deborah Winger is dying. And then like one of the kids just like gives him like a pretty dirty look just as he is struggling to be a father. And it's like you get this like a, like a pretty absent story, but you get to see how like much like with uh, Shirley MacLaine uh, raising Deborah Winger, you see how Jeff Daniels and Deborah Winger are shaping their own kids. And uh, I don't know. It's filled with a lot of very beautiful truth, this movie, and a lot of good yucks, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, the stuff about the, you know, their children. I, I mean, I think the most emotional apex of the movie for me is when Deborah Winger is telling the kids that she's not going to be there anymore. And like the, how the one, the older one is just kind of being a little bit of a shithead about it and fucking smacks him. fucking smack. And like, you know, she's like, you know, you're not going to feel this way forever. It's just, it, it, uh, it destroyed me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Look, it destroyed me too. If, yeah. if I haven't been clear enough, but <laughs> rating system, yeah, <laughs> we'll be back on extended clip to talk about mother. I, mean, I was, I, I just didn't want you to think I was like one of your other girls. Not much danger in that unless you curtsy on my face real soon. Garrett, what is it that makes you so insistent on shocking and insulting me? I mean, I really hate that way of talking. You must know that. Why do you do it? I'll tell you, Aurora, I... Is about you, but you do bring out the devil in me. And we're back on extended clip. Uh, it's Malcolm in the middle. Malcolm, did you watch anything 
this week, <laughs> last week. Yeah, well, I'm happy to, uh, you know, say it's a return of a, a, a kind of an underground segment, Malcolm's AMC Movie Club Corner. Hell I yeah. Saw a new, <laughs> I saw a new movie this year, this year, uh, this, this past week um, called Spree. Uh, it's directed by, let's see. If Eugene K. K. Kotla Rank. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> um, we'll, we'll get a clean read yeah. on it. Don't worry. I'll yeah. patch it in. All right. Good. And uh, it's a it's a pretty, you know, current movie about Kurt Kunkel. Wonderful name. Uh, a rideshare driver who, you know, he wants followers. So he's trying to find a way to go viral through live streaming. And, you know, I'm kind of a sucker for, like, how films depict modern technology. And this movie definitely gives it to you. I think it does it in a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty smart way. You know, maybe not the best way. But I think there's certain scenes where you're seeing three different live streams. And I kind of get off to that in a way. And I think this, this, uh, more importantly than all of that stuff, this movie does have, like, a good sense of genre to it as as a thriller in, like, a horror movie. That, that's what I was gonna mainly say is this director uh, and give me give me give me a second to get a read on this Eugene Kotlarienko definitely got that wrong but uh, his previous film Wobble Palace also incorporated a lot of screens on screen and you know uh, mobile apps and su- such yeah. like that and I think that this film works far better as a thriller than that did as like a digital rom com or whatever the fuck mm-hmm. it was going for. Uh, basically a Sundance movie, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but this this one genuinely works as a thriller. I think that some of the some of the online stuff doesn't feel fully real. I think that more than anything, it shows how quickly online culture moves, where you can't even produce a movie before something becomes dated. You know? Yeah, and I think this movie kind of comes close. It's almost there. Like it is. I do like uh like the richness of the comments on the live feed and like I I was just thinking mainly it's like that would have been fun to write all those comments for yeah. the the movie and like um I think it's fairly funny has a good sense of humor on its hand I think like the uh what is it David Arquette uh, as a uh, is that yeah right. yeah yeah is it yeah it is I David didn't Arquette that. okay um I as, didn't realize there were any stars in this film oh yeah there's stars as Chris Kunkel Kurt Kunkel's uh, father. We got a, a DJ father son, uh, not duo, but they're both DJs. I thought that was funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's it's lightly likable, you know. It's exactly. Not, it's, it's not it's not brain food, so to speak. But I was just happy to see a 2020 movie that um, felt consumable. Exactly. It was good enough. It was good know? enough. Yeah. Uh, I would I would say there's about 20 minutes of a truly pulse pounding thriller in there, and uh, it, it's a good movie in general. Uh, there, there's some. It could have been, I think, a gnarlier genre movie. Like it is, I don't want to say it's fully clear that it's a guy who is making mumblecore type stuff, making his first thriller. Mm-hmm. But it's a little bit there, you know. Yeah, like if yeah. it was in a real genre filmmaker's hands, with the online insight that it has and these performances, I think it could have been a step above and one of the better movies of the year. But it's a good movie. No, you, you can't get any better than that these days. No, I, I think it's partially due because I think it's a little bit more uh, obsessed with it's what it's trying to do with technology rather than being a thriller. But maybe if maybe if he were to recognize his own qualities and lean into that further, yeah, I agree, it'd be better. Good soundtrack too. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, it's almost becoming a trope to do the contemporary urban thriller with a extremely kind of online electronic music. 
uh, artist doing the score. I, maybe it's just this and OPN doing Safety Brothers yeah. movies, but I feel like it seems like a thing now. It's almost there. It's almost there. And next I, thing you know, uh, Andy Stott is going to be <laughs> scoring a uh, uh, Andy Samberg movie. <laughs> <laughs> From Stott to St- Samberg. I couldn't think of an Andy in the indie scene. <laughs> Andy Kaufman. Um did you watch anything interesting in in the time since we recorded last JT? Uh, I haven't really had the chance. We like we recorded our last episode two days ago. Life as a podcaster is very difficult and challenging, um, and sometimes I have to lo- watch a lot of movies and think about a lot of things uh, for this job. Um, but in between movies, um, and as I traveled about on my day to day, I've been reading. Uh, Blow My Tears, The Policeman Said, by Philip K. Dick. And this is my uh, Little Dick book corner. And uh, I I don't know. Last week or a few weeks ago, I talked about uh, seeing Scanner Darkly and Paycheck. And uh, it seemed fitting that I would be uh, the next book I would dive into would be a Philip K. Dick. Because I've read some of his other stuff and I have dug it so far. Uh, but this is about uh, Jason Taverner, who is like it's a dystopian Earth in like uh, generally around like Los Angeles and uh, Las Vegas. It's like in the future, so they travel very quickly from city to city through space age technology. Um, but this uh, famous musician, Jason Taverner, and like talk show host uh, is like attacked by like an ex lover that sends this thing that like digs like feeding tubes into him. And he sort of passes out as he's going into the hospital um, and then wakes up in like a hotel room without any of his identity cards or any of things that like this new fascist police state like requires uh, of him. But he he realized he doesn't exist. He's off the grid. No one remembers him. He never existed. And he's just sort of fumbling around trying to get like uh, fake IDs and things like that to survive. And like, I don't know, he's just desperately clawing to get back to his normal life. And what I really like about Philip K. Dick is that he'll do really interesting things with like identity and like weird sci fi uh futures but it is so like pulpy and easy to read i have just been rocketing through this book and uh i I would recommend it i think i might read a book one day i've been (sighs) kind of thinking about this for a while and i think it would like i just see myself opening up a book and reading it and i think that's just like a good image of myself (laughs) i feel good when i read a book i do feel like i'm doing a good thing like I it's feel been like too long since we had JT's book cook book book corn book nook <laughs> book. Cook. <laughs> it's because uh, I'm burning books. <laughs> that's why it's a book cook. cooking books. Yeah, JT's cookbook. That's the that's what I was looking for. It's that's the segment is JT's cookbook. Okay. Uh, but what uh, about? I've, I've been wanting to read that since I watched uh, Southland Tales, and John Lovitz says the title. Yeah. Oh really? Damn. I thought you were going to say South Park. <laughs> Ever since Cartman referenced it uh, on season four. Nah, man. Me and Cartman are over. <laughs> that guy's bad news. 
Um, have you watched anything, Eddie? Um, yeah, I watched a, uh, a 1998 film called Dilse uh, from India, directed by Mani Ratnam, and it stars Shah Rukh Khan as a, uh, a radio journalist, or as I like to call it, a podcaster, <laughs> uh, who falls in love with a woman uh, who, while covering a, like, a separatist uprising that he doesn't realize this woman is a part of. And uh, then she later comes back after their love falls apart and he's about to marry into uh, what would, you know, appease his family, more of a traditional lifestyle. Uh, but he wants to uh, he wants to get with this radical lady. But, uh, you know, nice. the film, it's 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 not a comedy. It's a it's a tragedy because, you know, so- sometimes even love cannot overcome liberal complacency and sometimes. You just got to detonate the vest. Hell yeah. Well, you know, I think uh, liberals have killed love. So <laughs> neoliberalism <laughs> killed the rock star or the radio star rather. Sorry. <laughs> the rock star. I'm getting all my wires crossed tonight. <laughs> they don't listen to rock music anymore. The first of three podcasts we're recording and I'm already goofing up left and right. But this is a beautiful film. Uh, the cinemascope compositions throughout the entire two hour forty. It's only, it's not even three hours. Watch it right now. But the the compositions do not light up. It's like every frame is so perfect and not in an overly uh, zealous like uh, every frame a painting way. It's just like uh, Manny Ratnam has such co- control of every scene, and then these musical numbers just break the plane of the narrative, and like, they feel like they exist in this kind of allegorical space. And, you know, one of them takes place on top of a train, the first one. And it's one of the coolest things I've ever fucking seen. You know, from the moment that I saw the camera mounted on the train and seeing uh, these characters dancing as they go into a tunnel and then back out, I was like, oh, this is a masterpiece. There's still, you know, two hours and 20 minutes left in this movie, but I already know it's a masterpiece. So go ahead and watch that. I know it's a pretty basic, you know, baby's first Indian movie recommendation, but I still recommend it with my whole heart. You listen to extended clip and you don't want to be like, oh, I don't want to do the first. I don't want to take the first step. Yeah. I want to take the third step and then the sixth step because exactly. I'm, I'm that next level. But, you know, it's there's no shame in starting out at the start. Just a, a little tip from me. Yeah. I'm going to talk about another Indian cinema 101 that I watched last week on another pod we're recording tonight, but we'll get to that. We'll get to it. Um, and we'll also get to Mother by Albert Brooks, which we couldn't quite squeeze into the segment. I'm so sorry. I know I said <laughs> we would talk about Albert Brooks's Mother next, but I'm sorry. It's going to be next after this unextended clip. She came with a lot of nice furniture. of flags there was like any a cue stuff dude what'd you say any cue um no i mean i like it's the thing is like aside from like some people who because like people sitting at the restaurant like mm-hmm. were reacting because it's like they're the 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 mega they're just trying to bait them i mean it's like yeah not like mega people that i could like sympathize with because it's all like they there were a lot of israeli flags <laughs> um <laughs> and it seems like they were like predominantly like rich like upper middle class like republicans but uh they 
were just, I don't know, they're just trying to get a rise out of people. And of course they did. And like people are like shouting like, fuck you, boo. And like flipping the bird off. And it's like, damn, this is, this is epic. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but yeah, the big rig was probably my favorite part because it was just a regular big rig, but it was it hauling a truck, a Trump train truck uh, oh, on shit. the back of it, and uh, it, it was weird though, like they because there were parts where it was definitely like uh, I don't know, I was worried that people would get violent because some people like would stop their car and like actively like try like antagonize like specific people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was weird for sure. We're talking to JT live on the ground at the <laughs> Trump train 2020 rally yeah. rolling from Woodland Hills to studio city along Ventura Boulevard today on this, this glorious Friday afternoon in the San Fernando Valley. It's Sunday in the San Fernando <laughs> Valley. <laughs> I'm just happy I could get out and show my support for our president and, uh, we're going to make <laughs> yeah. it another four years. Yeah, it is. It is kind of um, you're saying like there's a lot of upper class like Republicans in like the Valley who just went to the that just seems like such a waste of time. You yeah, know what I, mean? I, I was looking through that tweet thread of like videos from the scene today. And yeah, there was this lady just like uh, stopping people in their cars and like asking them why they're there or whatever. And you just get all these guys just like David from Winnetka. And it's just like a guy with a Trump hat and no mask in sight, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like, look, man, we're getting attacked from the left. It's not fair. And uh, that's why I'm honking my horn on Ventura Boulevard today. <laughs> <laughs> there there were so many Israeli flags, though. Like, more yeah, than. Dude, it was insane. More than Trump flags. Yeah. <laughs> Every video I saw had at least two Israeli flags <laughs> yeah. in it. And I just, I was like, I, I'm not going to tweet anything about this. I'm just going to go away. Another Mossad psyop brought yeah. to, you know, brought ramp up. Uh, what do you call it? What's the I thing Armand White always it. talks about? Yeah, uh, it, it's too bad we're not, you know, bridging the gap and talking about Albert Brooks is looking for comedy in the Muslim <laughs> world this week. <laughs> but instead, we're talking about Mother. We're back on extended clip uh, talking about Mother, the Albert Brooks film from 1990. Yeah, and Mother is a 2017 film starring Darren Aronofsky, <laughs> directed by Albert Brooks. It's from 1996. I'm sorry. Correction. <laughs> My paper's here saying that it's from 2017. <laughs> yeah, you know it's a good extended <laughs> clip when you can hear me leafing through my notebook throughout the mm-hmm. podcast. But yeah, Mother is a 1996 film by Albert Brooks. And, uh, you know, it's about a science fiction writer, uh, twice divorced, and moves from L.A. to the Bay, back in with his overbearing, overfeeding, oversharing mother. And uh, chaos ensues as he <laughs> tries to get to the root of his mommy issues and why that relates to him getting divorced all the time. And boy, does chaos ensue. <laughs> this is such a fucking weird movie. Yeah. I it's almost unrateable and yeah. like un uh eval- unjudgeable. I can't put I can't place a value judgment on almost anything within True. the film, you know. Looking at the form of the film, it, it looks like the other Albert Brooks films. His camera work is very attentive to performance and the spaces uh that the characters inhabit. Uh he's a very sharp editor. He's a very uh, or him and his writing partner are very sharp in writing dialogue and there are these very long scenes that are like 
eight minutes, nine minute long comedy, uh, you know, cringe comedy scenes that feel like they're 30 minutes long, you know, and it's such a weird protracted feeling, but it also kind of just whizzes by at a hundred minutes. It's a, it's a very strange film. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's like, this one's kind of hard to parse for me, but it's also maybe cause it's just so simple. You know, because it, it literally maybe it, it is that simple. Like it, it literally is <laughs> like a, like just Brooks, you know, just I don't know, just going to the grocery store or just hanging out <laughs> at his house. Like it is like you know when I think we say like we like movies like a leisurely pace sometimes or like um, you know like plotlessness or something like this where it's like this is like if like Albert Brooks was just walking around town for a hundred <laughs> minutes and they made a movie and I kind of like it. But I also kind of like want to fall asleep to it more than I want to watch it. <laughs> well, if we were going in order with Albert Brooks like we are with James L., we would see how he ends his films and how he's constantly utter undercutting these endings that you would expect. In films like Modern Romance and Lost in America, there's these gags where it's like, is it a happily ever after? Well, let's get like three end credit cards uh, that just like mess with the audience is a last second gag kind of and then this film as it's ending i i was mystified i was like this can't be it it's not gonna just gonna wrap up this neatly and simply and this isn't like a hallmark movie that it seems like it's unraveling itself as being <laughs> but it is i guess it kind of <laughs> that ending kind of works a little bit for me because i feel like like there are a lot of relatable moments for me in Albert Brooks getting like pissed off at his mother. Like I have a lot of similar like disagreements with like, I don't know, food, grocery store things, just differences of like opinions and the way you like, or, I don't know, do things. And it's just, it's, I don't know, the bozo mode that Albert Brooks is in this time around is a little bit more annoying to me because it's like he's just like he's he's like a middle-aged man realizing that his mother is a person <laughs> and, and it's like dude i like this happened when i was like fucking 21 <laughs> like yeah, and even it, more so than like modern romance or lost in america he can't get out of his own fucking way like anything that's a problem in his life is entirely his fault and so easy to fix and he just can't get through it you know these conflicts with his mom I get it. You know, there's easy ways to get frustrating at these relationships and disagreements, but he's such a fucking bozo about it. It's yeah. That's clearly why he's a twice divorced, you know, science fiction writer. <laughs> so much of it, like, that's why it's like hard because it's like I get it's cringe comedy and it is very funny, but it's just like hard to sit through that much of just a man just like pissing off his mom uh, uh, yeah. it's kind of like a like clifford with a mom instead of an uncle you know he's like regressing so hard he sets up his childhood uh bedroom in his mom's house and he has the you know science fiction posters that he grew up on and you know you get a nice needle drop with in my room as he's I don't, yeah, I, it's almost like I kind of don't buy Brooks as like a science fiction writer either. Like it is, there's a lot of elements in this movie that are just like, I still kind of like overall am on its side, but it is like, compared to other Brooks movies, probably my least favorite just because of like 
Brooke's charm does kind of run out here. Like it oh, does... he has no charm in this movie. <laughs> yeah, His like... charm runs out within five minutes yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah. This is easily the most grating Brooks performance I've seen. And, you know, he does dumber shit, I guess, in movies like Lost in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, he has more frustrating actions in his more, I guess, well-received comedies because, I guess, those films cut it with more comedy and with more uh, heart, I guess. And this film, the sincerity of the ending rings so false because uh, all of the curmudgeony, you know, not able to get out of his own way stuff of the first hour and 25 minutes all also really ring true as like self-effacing, like self-critique, you know? And I think that's what was getting me through it is this is just the story of an absolute shithead and you kind of feel like Albert Brooks feels like that's actually him, kind of. I mean, to compare this with our our A movie, Terms of Endearment, right? It's kind of the complete opposite of how it treats sentimentality until kind of towards the end where it tries to give you that, um, you know, little punch with her, you know, discovering writing again. But it's like, it's, you know, it's not fully felt, but it is (laughs) it is just interesting. Like, I think Brooks and L. Brooks is a good pairing just because, like, even though there is like a a sincerity and like a you know even sentimentality to some of brooks pictures they they are like they are more cynical than anything something like modern romance right it's definitely trying to be like an anti-romantic comedy where it's like you know brooks maybe leans in to these tropes and enhances them you know with his own vision whereas like brooks is like you know uh almost not deconstructionist but it's just he's gonna um he's 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 not gonna you know give you a cherry on top yeah and also just like some of the gags seem so obvious in this that they have to just be real from his life things that he's pissed off at and wants <laughs> to, to he wants to explore like in a stand-up comedy bit. I mean, he is a stand-up comedian at his roots, you know, who kind of became a filmmaker through working at SNL and doing stuff like that. Then ended up making these fairly well-received comedies up until about this point in his career <laughs> where he started becoming a lot less favorable and I think it has to do with this film being for nobody. This is a film for 50-year-olds who are comfortable enough to still have, like, uh, mom stuff that they worry about every day, kind of. And uh, there's not a character under 40 in this entire movie, you know? <laughs> like, it's about old people. And it's so strange in that regard uh, because it's just like... I guess it plays like gangbusters to very sincere old Jewish people at the Lemley who went to see this, <laughs> but it also feels so bitter and contemptuous of the people who would actually swoon over the sentimentality of the end, you know? I guess it's just for pure Brooks auteurists. Yeah, I, I'm starting to like it the more I talk about it. Like, I'm starting to like it more. You know, the drive yeah. that he takes up to Sausalito from Studio City, you know, is a beautiful mini road trip that yeah. we get again toward the end. And uh, I love on the way when he stops that, you know, I was reminded JT had big plans to go up to Big Sur that were unfortunately uh, uh, cut short. Where are you heading? Heading up north. Big Sur? No. Big Mama. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? And here's to you. I cackled at that. Like, that was the hardest I've laughed at either of the films we watched today or anything else that I witnessed today. I, I was busting my shit up at that one. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there are moments like that where it's just like, I do really lose it at this movie. Like, it's like, and it's shit that's like 
I don't know, that I'm fully aware is like kind of corny and hokey. Like uh, when you mentioned that drive, that's when it begins the uh, Mrs. Robinson parody. (laughs) (laughs) That goes on for so long. The whole road trip seems like three minutes. It's longer than the real fucking Simon and Garfunkel song probably. And this is like the movie's biggest ace up at sea. (laughs) (laughs) He pulls it again at the credits. Come on. Oh, man. Go see a doctor. No, I don't need to see a doctor. I wasn't raised by a doctor. I was raised by my mother. That's who I need to see. And here's to you, Mrs. Henderson. Your grown son is moving back today. (laughs) He's like, I don't know. It's weird because it's like, it's him psychoanalyzing his relationship with his mother in a movie where he's forcing, like, uh, he's he's forcing his mother to be psychoanalyzed. And it's just, I don't know, it's so surface level like that. I feel like it's, it just makes it so complexing. But I don't know. There are a lot of really funny moments. Like, I will, the one gag I couldn't not mention was him, like, talking about fucking his mother loudly (laughs) (laughs) i thought that was gonna end up being like what the third act was about was like the neighbor you know uh, spreading that rumor because you see the neighbor overhear that and you also think the third act is going to be about the rivalry between albert brooks and his brother because right at that moment with like 30 minutes left he comes up to town and it becomes a little competition between them two that's resolved quicker than anything in the whole movie. You know, like this yeah. movie, the plotting of it even is a joke on the audience. It feels like. No, this movie's pretty like bare bones too, in a sense where a lot yeah. of it is just Albert Brooks talking to Debbie Reynolds. Yeah. And there's not, there's not a lot of characters for him to bounce off of like in his other movies. A lot of the supporting cast kind of weak, to be honest, there's like one date with Lisa Kudrow, one conversation with like John McGinley and yeah. like, Maybe like four scenes with the brother and that's it. And it, it is, um, I don't know. The saving grace of this movie is that Albert Brooks is funny. Like yeah. it, and, um, he's always going to make, um, his movies with a conversation in mind and boy, is this a conversational movie? And, yeah. um, you know, to the point where it's like some, like I, I always, uh, admired him kind of like, um, sometimes surpassing blocking just to kind of get like that raw one scene, one take, uh, comedy, you know, magic going mm-hmm. on. But sometimes here it's just like, and I guess it's the point of, of this cringe, awkward humor, but it's like these scenes can drag somewhat. Yeah. The the scene where Brooks is in the kitchen and Debbie Reynolds is like trying to feed him everything she has in the kitchen. <laughs> just one by one itemizing everything that's wrong with it. You know, it's just like that scene is 20 minutes long and he doesn't, he takes one bite of food, you know, throughout the, it's so fucking ridiculous. I mean, I think one of the stronger scenes where this a- approach works is maybe the grocery store scene. I was about to bring that up. Yeah. Where they're arguing about, you know, Albert Brooks wants premier jelly and she's always buying the cheaper jelly. And then she runs into, two of her older friends and then you just i do you do sympathize oh, situations sound like, like rodney dangerfield jokes <laughs> they sound like the worst stories that people tell you like your co-workers tell you like oh, i was in the grocery store and, and i ran into the, the cheap jelly <laughs> no respect <laughs> no respect oh <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, and it's just like it's like oh then we saw this person at the grocery store and then we went to the other lane and then we saw him there again. It was crazy. <laughs> and we were just like, well, I guess that's cool. 
but it's like I guess Brooks and just like some of his mugging and he could he could he could drag a scene to the finish line. Yeah, the the thing that immediately made me think that nobody under the age of fifty was enjoying the movie was when he uh, or she splits the fridge in half, and she's like, "Here, you can put all your vegetarian stuff there." And you know, splitting the apartment in half—that's like a sitcom trope for the thirty years leading up to that movie. But he says, "What is this? It happened one night." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, it is. It is like if if you are an auteurist, right? You do have to appreciate. Something that does seem completely for Brooks and like kind of like maybe just a state of his neuroses and just yeah. like maybe just little side notes of little, you know, annoyances he's had and he flushes them out into full length scenes. That kind of seems like the the formal conceit of this movie is like there's one issue in the scene and they just... <laughs> They argue or talk about that issue. Well, when I saw broadcast news a few months ago for the first time, I thought that it was kind of perfect because Albert Brooks was like the cucked third man instead of overdosing on his neurosis. And then this film is exactly what I had in mind when I said overdosing on his neurosis. But I think it goes so far. It's like horseshoe theory, you know, in describing it. I'm starting to love how uh, fucking stupid this movie is like this movie (laughs) is albert brooks's character in the sense that it has such easy solutions to its problems but it takes eight minutes to get there you know the scenes can be resolved so easily but albert brooks as the filmmaker refuses to let them be solved so easily he makes these characters butt heads for way longer than they need to but it's really funny yeah and it's it's also funny how like when he wants to solve a problem especially in this movie like or just like push the plot along it's like there's not there's no more of that hand ringing anymore it'll just go snap like that you know kind of like the weird jump in albert brooks head where he's like i got divorced two times so i gotta go live with my mother and yeah. sort out my problems. <laughs> it's like it doesn't even really like it's like all right well <laughs> you know, i mean it's like the jump at the end is so fucking funny where he finds that single woman that like uh, just like it's all like so convenient mm-hmm. that it happens and like works out, but it's just so fucking funny because of that. Like that he's recognized by a fan at a gas station who just yeah. like drops all the titles, um, which are great. Like the day there was no Earth is so fucking <laughs> funny. Yeah. Um, but and that, how that like he very quickly falls into exactly the type of relationship he wants immediately after like solving his mommy issues. And I love how it's solved by just like one night, his mom is out with some horny old man trying to lay pipe and uh, she just knows something's wrong. So she just has to go home. And of course something is wrong. Albert Brooks has discovered her past as a writer and he realizes that the reason his mom hates him and she completely refutes this, of course, (laughs) because she doesn't hate him. They just have a shitty relationship, you know, Uh, but he's just like, oh, she hates me because I'm a writer and she feels threatened. Boom, movie solved. And the yeah. next scene, yeah, he goes to the gas station and, uh, you know, the the first person under the age of 45 to appear in the film is a young woman who recognizes him from the book jacket, I guess. Booyah. You yeah. know, and, uh, you know, it's me being up and down California, much like Albert Brooks. Now, it made I, me want to cruise. Um, it made me want to cruise, but also I feel like it hit a landmark I might have hit before that scene we're talking about. That gas station scene, I noticed... In Salinas? Yeah, he hits... It's in Salinas, and I, I have been at that exact gas station, and Hell it, like, yeah. recently, like, two years ago, and I could tell, like, 
by the gas station layout. A little more uh, extended clip location scouting. Uh, I also have driven by the the streets that Albert Brooks takes to get to the freeway from his Sherman Oaks Studio City home in the beginning. Uh, that is a that is a constant Postmates hotspot. Uh, Malcolm <laughs> has also delivered food in the greater Los Angeles area. I'm sure you're aware of the, yeah. the Studio City Sherman Oaks hotspot up in the hills where Brooks lives in this movie. All the fat cats at studios can't you know get in their car and go pick up burger king yeah. so we got it for him <laughs> yeah brooks is ordering postmates from the cheesecake factory 20 years later in this film <laughs> i gave this one three on letterbox i'm bumping it up i think it's like so uh like at odds with conventional audience needs i guess like what someone wants out of a movie like this yeah. because even a movie like modern romance you have to think like how did general audiences put up with his shtick you know so yeah. hard like he's way more or it's you know it's like a west coast woody allen kind of thing and uh at times he's even more in his own way and nebbish and stubborn than woody allen's characters are you know and his films are so much more about him you know where woody allen makes more ensemble pictures but I think this one just goes so hard in that direction that I have no choice but to relate to it uh, and to love it, you know, uh, our, our fellow Jewish listeners out there, you know, I'm sure you've had some some family food related affairs in the past, you know, <laughs> that have given you, you know, trauma over the years. <laughs> to our Jewish listeners, Laheim, and thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, so I'm giving this one three and a half. I'm not going to say a Jewish thing. Three and a half bullets, because I already did a replacement for the bullets on the first film. So. True. You can't overuse that shtick, or else yeah. it's going to get stale I, and real And I did quick. harpoons last week, so I need <clears throat> only bullets from here on out. Only today. bullets. I'm loading my gun from here on out. I'm going to give this one three bullets. I like, I like your case for it, and I, I agree with it to an extent, but at the same time, just remembering myself watching it, like I don't, I don't think it's three and a half. It's I, so <laughs> slow. <laughs> it is very slow. But like, like I said, there are funny moments... I just, as a Brooks fan, I'm just glad, like, he got another vehicle to, like, you know, do his thing in, you know, at this point. Because after this, it's just the the looking for comedy in the Muslim world, right? So, it, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. It is what it is. It's nothing, it's a, it's a minor work, but uh, it's worth looking out. If I mean, just watch all of Albert Brooks's movies. He only has, like, seven of them, you know. So just do that. What about you, JT? Um, I think I agree with you, Eddie. I'm bumping this up to three and a half bullets. It's like, I don't know. I definitely want to rewatch it at some point. Not right away. Like, I definitely need some space for it. And I think after watching, like, the other Albert Brooks that we will for the podcast, um, I don't know. I'll appreciate it a little bit more. But talking through it, it's like it, there is a lot of it that is really fucking funny. Uh, to me and uh, I don't know just like how personal it feels in that relationship with the mother it's just like it's him telling too much of his story <laughs> uh, um, but I, I don't know it's the autorist in me just can't resist that kind of shit and uh, I don't know there's a there's enough to really dig here yeah, I think maybe maybe if I'd saw this after like a couple weeks into the Brooks Brothers series, maybe I would have warmed up to it a little more just getting into that Albert Brooks groove. But no, I, I get what you guys are saying. I'm basically there. I always act anytime we like disagree a half star act like it's a, a huge disagreement. <laughs> basically of the also I saw, you know, perusing the letterbox reviews, I saw 
couple pe- people say, oh, Albert Brooks is so annoying. That's anti-Semitism. Sorry, people. <laughs> yes, it is. Cease and desist. <laughs> Shut it down. Cancel their letterbox. Um, next week on Brooks Brothers, we will be joined by friend of the pod, Sean Glynnis, to be talking about, uh, what are we talking about next week? Broadcast news by James L. Brooks and Albert Brooks's real life. Uh, his, so a couple of movies about the small screen, the boob tube. <laughs> These are two heavy hitters, two personal classics of mine. So I'm really excited to get into this. And I don't think I've watched real life in like five or six years. It was one of the first kind of like new Hollywood comedy movies I watched uh, and was probably my first exposure to my good friend, Charles Grodin. <laughs> so I'm excited for that one um, on the Patreon this week. For $2 a month at patreon.com slash extended clip, we are talking about Johnny Toe's Don't Go Breaking My Heart, a modern classic. So why don't you go ahead and mm-hmm. sign up for that? And I know we're doing the Brooks Brothers, but I think I think my secret lover for this month might be Johnny Toe, just because after just watching a couple of his movies, like I'm just ready to cycle through them you know johnny toe you know b- between him and the, the sentimentality of james l brooks i'm ready to fall in love all over again <laughs> with the cinema with the cinema uh, no girls yeah keep keep telling your friends about the patreon you know we kind of hit a brick wall with it kind of a kind of a slow decline the last couple of weeks but uh 150 bucks a month you know i'm still i'm still promising that dvd slash blu-ray raffle so uh if you're on the fence now's the time to do it give your two bucks uh you have a chance at getting a signed copy of do the right thing by spike lee on criterion and actually that might be one of my reserves I was why the fuck would you give that away yeah come on well, man. to get people to donate to the patreon you might get it you might get it yeah you might invest get it na- maybe invest now this is a long-term investment for me and for the listener yeah well i i don't know i if i were to guess the listeners might not be so financially savvy. So let me give them a stock lesson. You invest now, <laughs> win later. It's very true. We don't, yeah. We've never revealed the returns portion of our Patreon setup, you know, but uh, just look out for that. You know, big news coming soon. They should just be harassing people to listen to the podcast. True. I yeah. think that's more of a, we need a targeted harassment campaign. People harass us. Yeah. They har- Teens harass us on Twitter all the time. <laughs> Why don't you do the heavy work for us and harass them back? So uh, this week, I guess we're going out with that message. Extended clip promotes harassment in all and any capacities. Yep. <laughs> Except for at work. True. Let's keep it. Work Jesus. is all about the money. <laughs> Get the chase the paper. All right. Uh, we will see you on the Patreon. Cool. I was just inches from a clean getaway.